Thank you, Tim. Well, we are in a study of 2 Timothy, and I hope that you will be able to listen with two ears. One ear is for yourself uh, and, and the congregation as it normally functions, but the other ear is in light of calling a pastor. That's one of the primary reasons we will spend uh, a couple of months here in, in this book. So if you would, would you stand? We're going to start in verse 14, but we're going to finish the chapter. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetius, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. O Lord, we ask that you might add your blessing to the reading of your word, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. <clears throat> While our daughter Lindsay was living overseas, we called and found out she was quite ill, so weak, in fact, that she couldn't walk for four days. She had eaten an egg and some yogurt that were bad. And even 10 days later, she still was feeling the effects of food poisoning. Now, nobody wants to be uh, that ill, and so I suspect that uh, you, like me, use caution when you discover one of those things that's in the back of the fridge that's been back there for a while. Uh, you uh, pull it out, and you inspect it closely for mold. You open up the container, sniff it. You might even have to poke it with a fork. Um, and when in doubt, throw it out. That's the motto I live by. There are just so many places in the world, like where my daughter was, where there are no food safety standards for their handling and storage. 
and places where you need to avoid drinking uh, the tap water or eating food that hasn't been thoroughly uh, cooked because, well, you don't want to get sick. And this is true spiritually as well. In several places, the Bible compares uh, spiritual, spiritual nourishment, especially the scriptures and the reading of the word, to food. Uh, Peter describes it as milk. Paul, in one place, calls it meat. And Paul, in our text, is warning about two kinds of spiritual uh, food. Uh, Two kinds of teaching that have two very different results. One ruins people and leads to ungodliness, and the other produces life and health. We need a diet of life-giving, the life-giving word of truth. And so Paul tells us uh, we must be discerning. Uh, He tells us we must humbly receive the word of truth And he tells us we should look for certain uh, traits in those who minister the word to us. So Paul says we must be uh, discerning. And he makes this point by contrasting uh, Timothy and these two men uh, he names. He's saying to us, you need to be discerning about your spiritual diet. And he gives to Timothy, who is God's true workman, Uh, three instructions, three commands. He says, remind the churches in verse 14. Uh, He tells him to do his best in verse 15 and then uh, to warn the church in verse 16. So let's unpack this. Timothy is to remind them of these things. Well, just what are those things? Well, it's probably more than the contents of this letter. It almost certainly refers to the whole pattern of sound words that make up uh, the gospel, the apostolic uh, deposit that's been entrusted to him. And one of the characteristics of a healthy spiritual diet is that it takes a lot of time to remind people of what they've already learned. Now, many members of the church of Ephesus where Timothy's ministering uh, had heard Paul teach them for three years the fundamentals of the Christian faith when he was there planting the church. And Timothy is to remind them of what they knew and to say it in a fresh way and to press it into their uh, lives. On the other hand, false teaching introduces novelty. It departs from the pattern of apostolic teaching. And Paul gives an example in verse 18. Uh, that the resurrection has already taken place. This was uh, what these two men were teaching was likely a teaching that keyed off one of Paul's statements about how it is that we die with Christ and are raised to new life. Paul was speaking spiritually, but they understood this as pertaining to all aspects of uh, the nature of the resurrection and life of the Christian. And it lets leads to ungodliness because it implies that what you do with your body doesn't really matter. In our day, it's popularly said that the New Testament represents only one of several viable versions of the Christian faith uh, that are only now being discovered because they were suppressed uh, by uh, the church. This is uh, the kind of thing the Da Vinci Code book 
uh, announced, and they're just a slew of books that say this, or you can turn into the History Channel uh, anytime it's running something about Christianity, and it will have this as its uh, premise. Timothy is commanded to do his very best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's to work in such a way that he receives God's approval, not the approval of people. And he's to rightly handle the word of truth. Now that uh, word, uh, rightly handle, that phrase is a Greek word, orthomeo. And it has that prefix, ortho, which we hear in the word orthodontist, somebody who straightens teeth, or orthodoxy, which is uh, straight uh, doctrine. And it means to cut straight, Uh, to cut straight the way a farmer uh, plows his field so that the seed goes in a straight row, so that the corn grows in a straight row, so it can be uh, harvested. Or the way a carpenter cuts uh, a board so that it fits exactly where it belongs. Or the way a tailor cuts cloth to fit precisely the other piece of the garment. Timothy is to get it straight and to tell it straight uh, as he communicates the word. He's to be both accurate and plain. And this means that the content of his teaching is very important. It's better to have 15 minutes of truth than 45 minutes filled only with humor and stories. Now, a humorous remark or story can... uh, actually uh, serve truth. They can illustrate truth. They can help us to hear something that sometimes is very difficult to hear. It's kind of like a spoonful of sugar. Helps the medicine uh, go down. Um, An embarrassing story, humorous story about the pastor can both illustrate how not to live this out as well as to help everybody understand the pastor is on exactly the same plane as everybody else trying to follow Christ. However, in an age of entertainment, humor uh, can be used simply uh, to, um, well, to please an audience. The straight truth contrasts in verse 18 with the false teaching which swerves. Now, that metaphor is drawn from archery, and uh, truth is now a target being shot at. And the the worthy workman is to hit the bullseye. His arrows are to fly straight and true. And Timothy is also commanded to warn the church about both the methods and the character of false teachers. As to its character, in verse 14, it ruins heroes, hearers. Verse 16, it's irreverent babble that leads to ungodliness. In verse 17, it spreads like gangrene. Now, that word picture is meant to revulse you. Uh, uh, it, it's teaching that's like a flesh-eating bacteria or like a cancer that eats away and distorts the shape of someone's body. And Paul goes on to say, it results in upsetting the faith of some, in verse 18. Apostolic truth, on the other hand, 
is sound. It imparts life. It brings health. And it strengthens and deepens faith. And Paul's not just speaking to Timothy. He's speaking uh, to us about the spiritual diet we take in. We are to be uh, discerning uh, because a bad spiritual diet will lead us to ill health. Now, Paul continues by pointing to the method in verse 14 that they engage with. Not to quarrel, he says. He says the same thing in verse 23 when once again he speaks about controversies and quarrels. Now, there are always some combative people in the church. There are some people that are never more alive than when they're in conflict. And there are other people who absolutely can't live with it. And Timothy is neither to promote discord nor to avoid it when he encounters it on the path to truth. Timothy is commanded to shut down quarreling, which is literally fighting with words. And Paul's language to Timothy is very strong here. Timothy is to exhort with authority because of the danger to the church. And he was uh, to assert himself forcefully. So what is this fighting with words? Well, it'd be a mistake to think that Paul was forbidding a careful attention to the words of Scripture or the words that we ourselves use, or that Paul is saying it's wrong to engage and even to argue uh, with people who are giving false teaching. But quarreling, quibbling, wrangling over words, seizing on texts of Scripture without really understanding the context they're in, engaging in polemics, which is, for you boys and girls, that just means warfare uh, with uh, words, uh, revealing novel, reveling in novel interpretations and disputed points of teaching. Well, the thing that's clear about all of that is it is not focused on uh, the wholesome teaching of the Scriptures itself. Charles Spurgeon was getting at this when he gave instruction to his students who were learning how to preach. He said, of all I would wish to say, this is the sum. My brothers, preach Christ always and evermore. He's the whole gospel. His person, offices, and works must be our one great all-comprehending theme to have faithfully unveiled the glory of God in the face of Christ will be in the final judgment accounted a more worthy service than solving all the problems of theology or exploring all the the finer points in which Christians uh, disagree. Now, blessed is the ministry in which Christ is all. Now, this command to shut down quarrels doesn't sit very well with us because it sounds like censorship, and we pride ourselves on free speech. And the reason for this command is a little more comprehensible if you understand the reality behind it. Your own experience actually teaches us, too, words have power. They aren't just empty sounds. If you have ever been wounded by somebody's words, you know they're more than simply vibrations in the air. They have a power of their own. 
In fact, it, it would be a little bit of an overstatement, but it gets at the truth. Language creates the world. It does more than simply talk about it. It alters the world. And that's why false teaching does so much damage. How can the word of God, delivered with precision and accuracy, bring forth life? Well, Christ is present in the preaching of the gospel. Jesus' ministry was powerful in both word and deed. And when he ascended to heaven, he entrusted his ministry of preaching to the apostles, which has subsequently been passed on uh, to the elders of the church. In Luke 10, 16, Jesus says this, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. Just let this, just hear that again. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. Christ comes to us through the word of God as it's preached. It's not just preaching, it's not just the ideas and words of the pastor, but they are the very person of Jesus coming uh, to us. Christ is the one who imparts life to us as he reveals himself to us, as he affirms us, as he teaches us, as he challenges us, as he warns us. Preaching is a means of grace where Christ is communicated uh, to us. And so it needs to be cherished and protected. No technological advance uh, will replace or make preaching unnecessary. And this means, among other things, that we need to be really careful about the preaching we listen to. In fact, our entire spiritual diets. Now, I'm not going to take a poll, but I suspect that most of us occasionally have a snack, right? We not only sit down for our meals, but occasionally have a snack. And of course, there are healthy snacks. You know, those carrots and celery and maybe some fruits and nuts. And then there are the ones that are like not so healthy. What kind of spiritual meals and what kinds of snacks are you taking in? Are you uh, more concerned with what you put in your mouth than you are with what you feed your mind and heart spiritually? Have you learned to discern the difference between what is wholesome and what is actually life-destroying? Now, secondly, what Paul goes on to press is if we're to receive the word of life, uh, the, the life that the word uh, is meant to impart, we need to humbly receive its truth. Now, a sermon given on Sunday morning has both a vertical discipline to it and it's a corporate discipline. This was the practice of the early uh, church. Uh, when they first gathered, they devoted themselves uh, to the teaching of the apostles as they worshiped together and had fellowship. Vertically, they were relating to God as they put themselves under uh, the apostles' teaching. And corporately, they did this uh, together. This, uh, there's a lot of parts to this, and I really appreciate something that uh, Craig Bryan Larson uh, uh, wrote um, in, in preaching today. And I want to read some things he wrote and then comment on them. 
So the first point he makes is this, that preaching brings us before God's word in the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells the gathered church. Listening to a sermon online is not the same thing as that. Why not? Why can't you just sit at home and read a sermon or a blog or listen to a podcast? Well, it's because God has committed himself to being present in a special way when his people are gathered. And closely related to this is is, uh, Larson's second point, good preaching rescues us from our self-deceptions and blind spots. For left to ourselves, we tend to ignore the very things in God's word we most need to see. Preaching is done in community and covers texts and topics outside of our control. You see, you choose what podcasts and what sermons, what blogs you read, and that means you're in the driver's seat. In church and in community, you hear things you would not choose to listen to on your own. Things that might penetrate your defenses, things that might actually touch a place that's tender, that needs to be addressed. Larson adds to that this thought, good preaching brings us to the place of corporate obedience rather than merely individual obedience. This is a uniquely corporate discipline that the church does together as a community, building up individuals in the community at the same time. Now, this is a dynamic that's really hindered by sporadic church uh, attendance. And one of the ways to overcome some of that because of necessity travel is to, is to, when you miss a sermon, to get it. In fact, our dear brother Glenn used to love to say, the message you miss is the message that you need. Larson's next point is this, that good preaching gives a place for a spiritually qualified person to protect believers from dangerous errors. To use the biblical metaphor, Christians are sheep, false teachers are wolves, and preachers are guardians of the sheep. The preacher is a person called and gifted by God with spiritual authority for the care of souls in the context of God's church. And for this to happen, really the way God intends for this to happen, the best way that this happens is in the form of being a part of a congregation and being under a pastor. You see, you can learn something from WebMD, but it's not the same thing as seeing your own doctor. It's the particularity of the people and the context. You can't find that online any more than you can submit to a church who exists in uh, Montana. Now, as good as uh, the best preachers are, and you can listen uh, to them, you can listen to many uh, who are no longer uh, with us, they're not pastoring you. And their messages ultimately are generic. Your pastor preaches with an eye on the people before him. Now, 
If preaching is this important, if it's so central, if it's so essential for a church to experience uh, spiritual health and vitality, why isn't it more impactful? Well, it may be that the Bible plays little or no role in the sermon. The Bible gets supplanted when the church or the congregation views the Bible not as the central source uh, of God's wisdom for living, but is irrelevant. And so the sermon becomes a search for relevance, uh, and that tends to make the scriptures a very small part of it. Sometimes preaching, well, actually uh, imitates other forms of communication. I have a dear friend who moved to San Diego, and he said it was very hard to find a church that was anything more than a rock concert followed by a TED Talk. Now, don't get me wrong, TED Talks are very compelling. Uh, If you're interested in the topic, uh, uh, they're hard to stop uh, listening to. I'd like to make room for more of them uh, in my life. Um, But they do not carry the same obligations of preaching. And if you know anything about TED Talks, you will realize that these are rehearsed many, many times. And the speakers are coached extensively. And your pastor will have only so much time to research uh, and prepare a sermon and only uh, really one time usually uh, to deliver it. It'll never be as polished as a TED Talk. Now, a lot of popular preaching is in a rush to get to what we should do before showing us who God is and what he's done. And what it does is it degenerates into self-help It lacks weight, and Christ is not proclaimed. For preaching to benefit us, uh, we must come prepared uh, by doing the sole work of prayer, of listening with humility to what God wants to say. Don't come to church or read your Bible even like this. God, I, I have an itch. Scratch my itch. If you don't scratch my itch, I'm I'm not interested. You see, there needs to be within us, and this is really difficult. It's difficult for us to put ourselves under authority. Uh, And it's difficult uh, for us to come with a readiness and an intention to believe and obey what's proclaimed. Eugene Peterson's a a well-known pastor, Um, who's written extensively about, about, well, Scripture. And uh, in one of his uh, books, he uh, writes about how at the age of 35, he bought some running shoes and began to enjoy the smooth rhythms of long-distance running. If you're not a runner, just you'll have to enter into this uh, a little bit. Um, uh, And he found himself soon competing in 10Ks, Uh, maybe once every month or every other month, and then once a year running a marathon. And he ended up subscribing to three running uh, magazines. And um, when he pulled a muscle and he couldn't run anymore, well, uh, the magazines were still all over the house, but he didn't pick them up anymore. It wasn't until he resumed running that he started reading them again. And then uh, he realized something that reading these magazines was just an extension of something he was doing. He read the magazines, well, 
in some sense, to gain companionship and to uh, learn about others' experiences as, as they ran to compare them uh, with his own. And of course, once in a while, he'd learn something uh, from an article. But it was mostly just to deepen the world of running he had. If he wasn't running, there was nothing to deepen. And the parallel, I hope, is obvious, both in our reading of Scripture and our hearing uh, of sermons in church. If you're not living in an active response to the living of God, then reading or hearing about creation and salvation and holiness won't hold your interest. See, the most important question when you come to hear a sermon is not, is this interesting? Not, what does this mean? But instead, what can I obey? You see, if the Bible's not alive to you, if preaching is boring to you, then you need to ask yourself, am I pursuing Christ? Am I yielding my will to him? Paul, in verse 19, writes, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from evil. These are quotes uh, from the book of Numbers. And uh, there's an analogy here. Paul is saying the church is like a foundation, the building foundation, and it's two inscriptions on it. And Paul's big point is this that though the faith of men can be upset by false teaching, the foundation of God's church is secure. The true church is God's building, and it has these inscriptions on it. The first one is secret and invisible. God knows the true church. He knows who belongs to him. Therefore, he will keep them safe forever, safe from false teaching. And the second is public and visible. Let everybody who publicly professes Christ show it by their living a holy life. And then Paul, well, the rest of the chapter is in some ways a digression on this. Because what Paul does is he applies this directly to the life of the minister of the word, the person to whom uh, we sit under. And we can summarize what Paul's saying this way, that we should look uh, for certain traits in those who minister the word. We should look for a man of character uh, to minister the word. The character of the preacher, uh, how he lives, matters. And so Paul describes it in verse uh, 22, in, in what he pursues. So he flees youthful passions and pursues righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then what he avoids have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies, you know, that breed quarrels. And how he teaches, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You see, he's not quarrelsome, but gentle. In other words, he's not spoiling for a fight. He doesn't have a chip 
on his shoulder. He's not argumentative. He doesn't need to have the last word or dominate people who don't agree with him. Instead, he corrects his opponents gently and leaves room for the work of God. Not quarrelsome is in the list of qualities that disqualify you from uh, being an officer in the church of Christ. Belligerency and militancy, aggressiveness or menacing behavior is not a fruit of the spirit, but rather of the flesh, along with hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. If Timothy is ministering in the Holy Spirit, contentiousness should be absent, even when guarding spiritual truth. The fourth trait that Paul mentions uh, here shifts from character uh, to an activity. He says in verse 21 that uh, the Christian leader is, well, rarely uh, spends their whole ministry without opposition. And though it's not everyday event for most uh, pastors. Nonetheless, it's inevitable that there will be people who will oppose uh, a godly uh, minister. And uh, because Jesus himself in Matthew 5 talks about this as being one of the marks of uh, truly representing him. The people opposing Timothy should find in Timothy clear teaching that seeks to inform but not through a haughty or high-handed manner. The history of the church is replete with examples, and I want to share one of them that's famous, uh, about a man who did much uh, good, but didn't guard this part of his character as well as he might. Toward the end of his life, Martin Luther engaged in a controversy with Swiss Uh, Christians over the meaning of the Lord's words, this is my body, uh, which refer to the Lord's Supper. These words became a source of great controversy in the churches in the Reformation. And under Martin Luther's uh, teaching, Lutherans were taught that those words were to be taken literally. The bread really becomes or is the body of Christ while the Swiss Christians maintained that they were figurative expressions. They also quoted Jesus. This represents my body. And arguments continued at great length. Count von uh, Zwingli, uh, the leader of the Swiss group, brought a delegation to Germany to meet with Martin Luther. And when Luther entered uh, the room where the meeting was to take place and people were gathered around a large table, Luther took Uh, chalk. I always thought it was a knife, but um, I've subsequently read uh, chalk, and he wrote across the length of the table, hoc es corpa minum, this is my body. That was his stand, and when other people tried to have a conversation about these two phrases the Lord Jesus used, Luther wouldn't enter into the discussion at all. He simply refused, and he would quote the words, this is my body, again and again. And so that meeting that was intended to resolve this ended with the church divided, greatly weakened uh, the Reformation and played into the hands of its uh, enemies. 
the minister of the word is to minister the word uh, plainly and accurately, to proclaim the word about Christ and to be growing in Christ's likeness. There's so many implications of that for you, but this is the one I want you to remember. I have said this a dozen times to the search committee when I trained them. Look for character. Character is more important than competency. You can grow in competency, but character is largely set. And chemistry is last of all. And very often when churches evaluate who to have their pastor, is they're drawn to the man's personality. I don't mean that you should want someone who's abrasive, (laughs) someone who uh, prickles, someone you find just repulsive uh, to you. But, uh, you know, that someone's charming doesn't make them a good minister of God's uh, word. They must be a person of character. And yes, they must be determined uh, to develop their competency uh, as a minister of the word and all the other things that pastors do. Jesus himself is the life-giving word. It's from him alone that we can receive the life of God. It's only in relationship with him that we can be given eternal life. He is the word that was there at the beginning. He created all things. He is the word that upholds all things by his power. And he is the word that reveals to us the way of life. And the word came to us in flesh. And he gave his life for us, his very flesh, that we might live. And so he gives us this meal here, and he commands us to eat and drink. As he says, this is my body, and this is my blood, to show us that inwardly we need the spiritual food of Christ himself, made plain in the ministry of the word, the word of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, be pleased to grant as we come to this table now that we would feast on you, that you would come to us and you would reveal yourself to us and you would give us more of your life. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.